0: From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're focusing on developments in the global oil market over the past month, which has been hit hard by simultaneous shocks amid the continuing coronavirus outbreak. First, there's the almost unimaginable demand shock owing to the outbreak, with demand for transportation fuels plunging as the world economy heads into recession. The other shock involves OPEC and the collapse of the historic 2016 agreement between those member nations and Russia, together known as OPEC+, to coordinate production cuts in the face of growing non-OPEC supplies of oil. That collapse has led to a supply shock as Saudi Arabia, Russia, and other OPEC producers engage in a war for oil market share. Although increased pressure from the United States has led to the prospect of a new round of coordinated cuts from major producers to help reduce the current oil glut, geopolitical tensions are escalating, and any feasible cut might prove to be too little, too late, given the magnitude of the demand loss. The implications of these simultaneous demand and supply shocks for oil prices, OPEC, the oil industry, and beyond, is top of mind. To get some perspective on all of this, I first turned to Pulitzer Prize-winning author Daniel Yergin, who put the current oil shock into historical perspective. Is this the biggest oil shock you've ever witnessed?
1: This is the biggest oil shock because it's global, and it comes at a time when the global economy is largely shutting down. I think the one that's most analogous to it in some ways is 1998, when oil production was going up just into the Asian financial crisis and demand was going down. And basically, the global industry ran out of places to store oil and oil went to $10 a barrel. Right now, we're seeing the biggest drop in oil demand in modern times.
0: I then spoke with Gary Ross, founder of Pura Energy Group. I started by asking him to give us some background on the relationship between OPEC and Russia and how we ended up with the recent collapse of OPEC+. Plus.
2: Saudi Arabia, OPEC, has been trying to manage the market for a long time, and it became more and more difficult as non-OPEC production has continued to grow. If you just think about an OPEC, who really cuts? It's Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the UAE are sort of the three core members of OPEC who cut. And if the Saudis are doing 10 million barrels a day and the UAE is doing three and Kuwait's doing two and a half, that's like 15.5 million barrels a day, while world crude-run call it is something like 85 million barrels a day, and total global demand is something like 102 million barrels a day. She can see how extraordinarily difficult it is to steer the world oil market and control prices. So they've tried to broaden as much as they could the management of the market, and they brought Russia in. And from Russia's point of view and every oil exporter's point of view, it makes sense – to cooperate on volume because the oil demand is relatively price inelastic. So from a small reduction in supply, they all gain revenue from that. This was the game plan, and they were successful in bringing the Russians in. Now, to be honest, the Russians have not really cut all that much. You never really know what they're doing, and the sense is that they have not been cutting very much. Their view has traditionally been that we don't have to cut, it's more in OPEC's interest and if we don't cut then OPEC at the end of the day will do the cutting and we can be a free rider. So the officially agreed cuts of OPEC and non-OPEC have been a total of about 1.7 million barrels a day and Saudi Arabia alone has cut over half of that. So they've done a disproportionate amount and then all of a sudden now you face a crisis situation where it's clear that demand is going to be declining quite rapidly. If you consider that transportation fuels 60% of global oil demand, it's not surprising it's taking a huge hit. So the Saudis are looking to get in front of this and cut substantially. And of course, the Russians have kind of hemmed and hoared and basically didn't really want to cut because they have strong historical aversion to cutting. But Basically, Putin decided to get involved with OPEC, maybe he saw that there were other political gain as he looked at his role in the global stage, his involvement in Syria and his involvement in Libya and looking to have a broader role in the Middle East.
0: When it comes to the collapse of OPEC+, Plus, both Ross and Jürgen agree that it was certainly brewing, even if it was unexpected. Here's more with Jürgen. Were you surprised by the failure of OPEC plus so Saudi Arabia and Russia to reach an agreement on further production cuts?
1: It was already clear that the OPEC plus agreement, which was really an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Russia, was already fraying because of different perspectives, different needs of the two countries. I think the Russian position is we shouldn't do anything now. Let's continue this to June and see where we are. And it was notable that the Russians had already canceled the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, which was scheduled for June, which is their really big economic event, because I think they thought this thing was going to get a lot worse. I think the Saudis were much more focused on market share issues, and they had borne the brunt of the cuts up till then, and the Saudi policy since 2014 is we won't do anything without the Russians. And I think the Russians also had another thing in mind, which is as they continued to cut back, They saw themselves giving up market share to the United States. And it was quite striking to see that U.S. oil production had increased almost 60% since this OPEC-plus was created. And the U.S. in February, ironically, reached the highest point ever of its production, 13.1 million barrels a day, almost 2 million barrels a day more than the Russians at that point, and 3.5 million barrels a day, roughly, more than the Saudis were producing. And I think the, the Russians had come to see the issue not only as a market share issue, but also in the context of the strategic rivalry and competition with the United States. But the abrupt way it ended and the oil war that started, I think that was not anticipated that it would be this violent, in particular in the middle of what is a global health crisis and a global economic crisis. There have been oil market wars before and battles for market share before but it's pretty bizarre to have one in the middle of what could turn out to be the worst economic crisis since World War II. This oil war is exacerbating the turmoil in the financial markets and the credit markets. So it's not something that's just happening over there in the corner in its own little box. This has global ramifications at a time when it's already very difficult for countries to collaborate to find solutions.
0: How much do you think U.S. sanctions on Rosnest and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline played a role here?
1: I think for the Russians, those sanctions loom pretty large. Sanctions has become kind of a major tool of U.S. foreign policy, and they've been facilitated in terms of oil by the fact of this complete turnaround in the U.S. energy position, at least in the minds of the Russians. And I think that the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 an $11 billion project, a signature project for the Russians about a week or so before the completion of the pipeline was absolutely infuriating to the Russians, but I think it loomed very large for the Russians, and I think it further complicates relations. And by the way, there's talk of new sanctions, which in my view would be counterproductive and would be logs on the fire in terms of being able to find some path towards stabilization sanctions are a stick and the history shows that Putin does not respond to them I think all it does is gets him to spend more time with Xi Jinping and strengthen this relationship between China and Russia that has been developing in common cause against what they see as US unilateralism you have to go back to the relation with the Soviet Union in the early 1980s to find relations this bad so, I think the u s doesn't have a lot of leverage and sanctions; they're only going to make the situation less amenable
2: and Here's Ross I was surprised because I would have thought it's in the broad interest of Russia to continue to cooperate since they haven't really been cutting very much in any event. But on the other hand, I wasn't all that surprised, knowing how they think. I was involved in trying to get Russia to cooperate with OPEC back in two thousand and one. 2002 post 9-11 and also in 2009 I met with high-level Russian officials in the government to try and convince them that it was in their interest to work with OPEC and it was a very strong negative reaction from the producers in Russia so I'm not really shocked from that point of view I'm also not really shocked because I think Putin is quite angry about the US sanctions And I think the companies have been making the point, and I think he's sympathetic to this, that U.S. shale production has been taking market share from Russia. Also, Russia has built up a bit of a war chest, and they do get this side benefit to the extent that U.S. shale oil production goes down. That should also lead to shale gas production going down, particularly associated gas, which is quite a bit of it. And that should help. The gas part of the Russian energy balance in terms of pricing, the Russian producers have very low cost structure so they can survive this. And they use the ruble as a mechanism to protect their industry. A decline in the RUPO, while they're still exporting in dollar terms, reduces the effective cost of production in Russia. So there's a lot of different reasons that you can make the argument that Russia wouldn't cooperate. But to be honest, I thought that they would at the time. But again, I wasn't surprised that they didn't.
0: And even if the collapse of OPEC Plus was unexpected, Ross emphasized that given the current circumstances, a strategy that sees lower oil prices is the only one that makes sense. Here's Ross.
2: I think there's another broad point to be made here, and that is that If you're a producer, a major exporter, and you're looking at the global oil market, and now you're suffered a demand loss, you're not sure how big it is. And in addition, you've seen Shell take your market share, while at the same time, major exporters are not exporting. Iran is not exporting any substantial amounts. Libya is not exporting at this time. Venezuelan exports have been dramatically curbed. So you look at that, and you say to myself, my God, we need to grow this market. At the same time, you have the forces of renewables and ESG, which are bearing down on the fossil fuel market, including oil. And you say to yourself, we have to somehow expand this market to make room for additional oil and slow down this demand erosion. And what's the best way to do that? Competitive, very low oil prices goes a long way and in increasing oil's relative market share in the global energy balance. Now, we saw this back in 1985. In 1985 and 1986, OPEC was trying to maintain price and they continued to cut production. Initially, they were replacing Iranian oil because of was an Iranian interruption and the iran Iraq war. But they were also getting hit quite dramatically on the demand side from nuclear and natural gas expansion. And then on top of all that, you had the North Sea and expansion of Alaska at that time. So all this combined to lead to a dramatic decline in Saudi production to try and balance the market from 10 million barrels a day back in 1979 down to as low as 2.5 million barrels a day in June of 1985. And I remember that quite vividly because Prince abdul who's the current oil minister, was in my office in New York in June of 1985. We were discussing what to do, given the circumstance that the demand for the oil had dropped so dramatically. And it was clear the only answer, the only solution was to allow prices to go down. And that's, in fact, what they did in 1986. They adopted a market share policy and a net back crude oil pricing policy and prices declined dramatically. And over time, the demand for oil picked up quite a bit and we saw the slowdown in non-OPEC supplies and market share for OPEC started increasing again. So it's not shocking to me that when you step back and you think about what OPEC is facing, that this policy makes some sense
0: Jürgen, for his part, is more mindful of the geopolitical consequences of the current strategy, especially given the U.S.'s growing focus on oil, as the U.S. shale industry, which is centered in important electoral states, is now getting pummeled by the oil price collapse. Here's Jürgen.
1: It is an election year. There are 38 electoral votes in Texas, almost twice the number as in Pennsylvania and Illinois combined. And I think domestic issues will loom. So Washington is going to become even more engaged in this, and it will be a factor in the overall Saudi-U.S. relationship. In other words, the oil market is not going to be over in its own playing field, but it's going to be part of a larger playing field. Something will give here because the world oil industry is going to run out of storage space, and that is going to be a very serious issue for everybody. And I think the stakes will continue to go up. You can feel the pressure rising in the US in this, but this is not an easy problem to solve. And as always, there are multiple voices in Washington urging in different directions. But by coincidence, the chairman of the G20 this year is Saudi Arabia, and that's a very important forum for the Saudis right now.
0: With all that said, both Ross and Jurgen agree that the supply shock is increasingly looking like a drop in the bucket, compared to the growing virus-related demand shock. So no matter what actions OPEC Plus takes, we're headed for an enormously oversupplied market and a period of sharply lower oil prices. In their view, how quickly prices recover is therefore largely a function of the trajectory of the virus and the mitigation measures to contain it. Here's more from Jurgen. Even if
1: OPEC Plus was in place and everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing, you'd still have A lot of extra oil pouring into the market because of the collapse of demand. So we're going to end up with high inventories anyway. And those inventories will have to be worked off when recovery comes. And you'll have a lot of oil inventories sitting on the back of the oil price.
0: To better understand the magnitude of the current oil imbalance and its implications, I spoke with Jeff Curry, our global head of commodities research. What does the massive oversupply of oil we have today mean for oil markets?
3: Oil demand is down roughly 25%. That is unprecedented, even unfathomable. The key here is it is the velocity of the surplus that matters here. And to understand why the velocity of the surplus matters is to understand the unique characteristics of oil and energy. First, let's think about it in the context of metals. I like to say with metals, all you need is a parking lot, a chain link fence, maybe a guard dog to protect it, and you're good, you can stack the metals to the moon. There's nothing to stop you from running a surplus. Energy, on the other hand, is constrained by its infrastructure, so that surplus has to be accommodated within the pipelines, the refineries, and the rest of that infrastructure. However, once you begin to breach that infrastructure, you begin having problems running that surplus. And once you completely breach the infrastructure, supply has to equal demand. And that's really the key here, is that ultimately we're gonna have to shut in enough production such that the supply equals the demand. And to achieve that, you're gonna have to see prices drop tremendously. In some cases, you can see prices go negative because Producers do not want to shut in because it's very expensive, and as a result, they would pay somebody to take that oil away in a truck or some other type of alternative transportation. So that's the environment that we're in right now, and it creates lots of downside risk. Prices in many of the landlocked areas are already at extremely low levels. In Wyoming, you already have prices at minus 19 cents. Oil up in Canada is trading around $5 a barrel. The key to understanding why these prices in places like Canada and Wyoming are so depressed is to understand the difference between what we call landlocked crudes and waterborne crudes. You take a Brent market, it's what we call a waterborne crude. It's priced up in the North Sea on the Shetland Islands. I like to say the Brent market is 500 meters from the water. That water is important because it creates flexibility. You can bring ships in there to take the oil away and yet that flexibility is not constrained like a pipeline that sits on the land. And now we turn and you look at WTI, it's 500 miles from the water. It's priced in the middle of Cushing, Oklahoma, with pipelines coming in and coming out. And as a result, think about it, it's like a freeway where you get congestion and you can have traffic jams. And when you have a velocity of the surplus that we're talking about coming through those pipelines, it will create a traffic jam and get clogged. Now, what's interesting here is it's going to force the shut-in of these landlocked crudes. The irony of this is the most flexible fields are the offshore fields as well as the Middle East fields. You can turn them off and turn them on very quickly. Why? They have very large reservoirs. When you turn onshore, the fields are much more mature, they're older, they're very tight reservoirs, that's really critical here because you're going to end up with these big shut ins on land or inland, and you're going to end up damaging the fields. And so, when you begin to see demand recover as the system begins to normalize, demand will be a V shaped recovery, supply will likely be an L shaped recovery, and it creates a potential for a bigger deficit down the road in potential upside the prices. And so, when we think about the velocity of the surplus, The harder and quicker you hit these capacity constraints, the quicker and more violent the adjustment process is likely to be.
0: Finally, I asked Curry about the broader implications of these developments for the oil industry and for the other key focus of energy markets before the recent shocks hit, the trend towards ESG. A lot of people seem to think that the current depressed prices will decimate the U.S. shale industry. What are the implications of all of this for shale producers and the industry more broadly? Assets don't go bankrupt. Only
3: management teams and balance sheets. It's not about the supply and demand of the barrels, but rather about the supply and demand of the capital. And what we're witnessing right now is a sharp reduction of the capital to the sector. Ultimately, those assets are not going to go away. What goes away are the balance sheets and the managements. And we'll likely see substantial consolidation and rationalization of the industries as these assets move to better balance sheets and more efficient producers. Now, going back to 2015, we expected this rationalization process to occur following a substantial increase in shale supply in the collapse of prices then. However, China stimulated OPEC cut production, and the US-employed fiscal policy, all of this delayed the inevitable. And we like to argue that the OPEC production cut actually created inefficiencies in the market by allowing producers to continue to operate that would have otherwise shut down. Since those production cuts in late 2016, the cost to equity in debt holders is in excess of a trillion dollars. Given the depressed oil prices, the lack of access to capital, we're gonna see that much badly needed rationalization and consolidation of the industry. Now, when we go back to that whole point that the market is likely to see a significant deficit as demand begins to normalize, the key is where are you going to find an immediate source of supply? Shale is fast cycle production. It's the one that can respond. So I hate to say it, when you look at the outlook, once again, shale is going to be the winner here.
0: What does this all mean for progress towards ESG goals, which was, of course, a major focus of the industry before the outbreak?
3: What's interesting about the current crisis is that it is the unsustainable industries that are being hit the hardest. Just think about airlines, autos, oil, cruise lines. But it doesn't just stop with the oil industry. When you look at 50% of meat consumption occurs in restaurants. And so we're seeing livestock herds hit. Also, think about fresh food. It requires jets, and it requires migrant workers, both of which have been slowed down under the current measures. So the net of this is, if you look at carbon emissions globally, right now they're down probably as much as 20%. The key issue is when we begin to see the normalization process and have to spend money to begin to rebuild some of these industries, will we want to spend money on rebuilding these fossil fuel-based industries or spend money on the energy transition? I would probably argue that from a demand perspective, many of these sustainable behaviors that we're adopting right now, some of them will be kept. But the longer this goes on, the more likely that these sustainable behaviors become persistent. To give you an idea of the magnitude of them, when we look at airline travel, it's roughly 8 million barrels per day or 8% of the market. We look at commuting, it's also about 8 million barrels per day or 8% of the market. So the, between the two of that, that's 16% of oil demand. So you can see if people end up cutting their commute by just one day, it can have a significant impact. However, when we think about the supply side, unfortunately, the technologies are still too nascent to be able to replace all that oil consumption with alternatives like electric vehicles, which suggests that we will need to see capital invested in these carbon producing industries, such as oil and other fossil fuels, and that will likely redirect capital that would otherwise go towards renewables and other assets, and that will likely slow the transition
0: to more environmentally friendly energy sources. So how the oil shock unfolds is likely to have both near and longer term implications that go well beyond the oil markets. So this topic is likely to remain top of mind. I'll leave it there for now. We wish you good health during this difficult time. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time.
4: This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener.